welcome everyone today and say we're so glad to have you. If you're new or visiting our church family, my name is Aaron. I'm the pastor here at Coastline Church. And to let you know that when you came in today and they gave you this red worship guide, that was actually written with you in mind. And hopefully it'll answer basic questions that you may have about today's church experience and just a little bit about who we are as a church family. Inside, you're going to find some message notes for today's message, as well as this little blue card in every worship guide. This is one of the most important things to us as a church family. It is our prayer card. Uh, it is our opportunity to come alongside you and pray with whatever's going on in your life, whatever challenges that you're currently facing in life. And let me know you, this is the best time of year to turn one of these in because we're right now in the middle of 21 days of prayer. We have one week left. We meet every morning at 6.30 a.m. to 7.30 a.m. This room is filled with people praying and then Saturdays at 9 a.m. And so if there's a challenge that you're facing in life, we would be honored to pray for you and to pray with you. We take it uh, very seriously as a church. And if you have not had a chance to join us, I want to encourage everybody in our church family to try to join us at least once during the 21 days. We'll be in here 6.30 to 7.30 of prayer sharp. If you can't physically be here because of kids or other reasons, uh, it's all streamed live on Facebook, so you can join us at home on Facebook Live. And then Saturday is our finale prayer meeting, as well as Friday night. We always end 21 days with a Friday night of worship where we get together and just turn the worship team loose for worship, and we receive communion. There's time of ministry and prayer. Just a great night Friday, so I'd love to invite you to be a part of that. Before we jump into the message, let me just take a moment and welcome everyone joining us from the cafe, and those of you that are joining us online, live streaming, and our Sunday night uh, audience, we're so glad to have all of you with us today. Uh, the video we just saw on Financial Peace University, can I tell you that it's one of the most important things you can learn in life. When you have financial peace, it brings you peace into every area of your life. About five years ago, my wife and I made some tough decisions, and it took us a couple years, and we worked hard to get ourselves debt-free. And can I tell you, being debt-free is one of the greatest things that have ever happened to our family. It's benefited our marriage. It's benefited our parenting. It, it has made an impact in every area of our life when you don't have that stress on you. And one of our dreams as a church is we'd love to see every member of our church, every part of our church family, debt-free. You know, not having that financial stress and that financial pressure. And the Bible will give you a path to lead you out. It's tough decisions and biblical wisdom, but it is absolutely possible for everyone here to make those decisions to get out of the debt that is just strangling. You know, I'm not talking about home mortgage debt. I'm talking about, you know, the, the, the debt that really is foolish. I, I wasn't trained growing up in a wise way, and so there's a lot of foolish debt, credit card debt and, and auto debt, basically living you know, the American way, which is living off of 110% of your income, which is what a lot of people in America do. They, they're living off of more than what they actually bring in, and, and the debt just slowly builds until it begins to strangle you and suffocate you, and it's destroying marriages in America and families in America. And so we as a church want to just help people understand that you can find financial peace. There is a way to live wise and to be a good steward. And the Bible actually has a lot to say. So after service today, you can stop by our small group table and uh, you will not miss the person you need to talk to. Just look for the suit. If you saw the suit coming in today, then you will know that there is a suit out there and you will know exactly who is in charge of running the small group that has to do with finances and money. 
So with that said, you'll figure it out as you leave today. I invite you to pull your message notes out. We are in this study on the book of Galatians. We've taken a very slow approach because Galatians is so rich and so meaningful. And it just has so much to say to us today. Even though it was written 2,000 years ago, it is so practical and so true for our life today. It was written to a group of churches that Paul uh, planted in the Galatia area. Paul was a church planter in the New Testament. He had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ. He went from somebody who was trying to destroy Christianity in a very violent way to, to one of the greatest church planters of Christian history. And Last week, we discovered that Paul planted these churches in the Galatia area, and it was not part of his plan. It was not part of his strategy that he was actually detoured from a painful circumstance in life. He said, it was because of an illness that I came to you. It wasn't part of my plan. I didn't, you know, this wasn't part of my vision. It wasn't part of my life strategy. Something detoured him. And we learn that some of the greatest pains of our life, the greatest tragedies of our life, the greatest, you know, just tragic experiences of our life, when offered to God, can become some of the most meaningful opportunities of our life. And we may not have the question why answered, but we can have meaning in the middle of the pain. We can see the pain in our life redeemed for God's purposes, just like we see with this letter. Today we're going to finish up chapter 4. We're moving into the fourth quarter of this series. We just have a few weeks left with two chapters to go uh, as today we finish chapter 4. So we're going to begin in verse 15. We're going to read the end of the chapter, and then we're going to dig into it and pull it apart. Verse 15, Paul says, Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. Now, he's talking about the false teachers that were trying to lead these new Christians astray, trying to get them back into the bondage of religion and take them away from the gospel. It is fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. This is, this, this is a father trying to save a son from just a, a life-altering mistake, you know, just tragedy. You know, as parents, sometimes we can see the choice. If you make this choice, it's going to damage your future. And we plead with our children and we cry out for our children, listen to wisdom, listen to reason. It's very emotional. And that's where Paul is. This is very emotional for him right now because he's trying to save these people for something that's going to devastate their life spiritually in every other way. <clears throat> and then he says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Like if you even understood what you were talking about, you would realize this is not the way you want to go. This is not how you want to live your life. It's not going to go well for you. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. And now he's going to compare and contrast religion with the gospel. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, his own effort, his own performance. That's religion. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. We learned a few weeks ago that the gospel is based and built on a promise. These things are being taken figuratively. 
meaning that Paul is using it as a metaphor. Now, these are historical happenings. They actually occurred. They actually happened. And there's meaning in what happened in history, but it's also figurative. There's also a metaphor he's trying to show us. The women represent two covenants. There's two ways to God. There's the religious approach and there's the gospel approach. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Religion is slavery. Religion is bondage. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. That is, our home is Christians, and she is our mother. For it is written, now he quotes Isaiah 54, Be glad, barren woman. You who never bore a child, shout for joy, cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, this is one of the most beautiful statements of the gospel in the Bible. It's, it's in Isaiah 54. And when you understand the meaning of this, it's radical. You see, back during this time period, a woman's entire worth, her value, was all built upon how many children she could have. The more children she had, the better it was for her family. The more esteemed she would be, the more children she had, the more financially successful they were because you know, the more kids you had, the more employees you had in the family business. The more children you had, the more secure you were. If there was an invading village that wanted to attack your village, well, the more kids you had, the more you had the ability to defend and protect yourself. So not having children was a death wish in this time period. Now, I know we look at this and we think this is so archaic. This is so, like, like, like how could they think this way and treat women this way? Can I be honest? We're still treating women the same way today. Today, it's not how many children they have. Today, it's these unrealistic expectations from these airbrushed models on magazines. Unless you look like this, you don't have value. You don't have worth. We're still doing the same thing. And what the gospel says is, is I can give you value and worth even though you don't have what society says you have to have. Society says you have to have this to have value. You have to have this to have worth. I can give you a worth outside of society that can make you sing, that can bring you joy, that can give you a sense of self-esteem and security that nothing you accomplish in this world will ever give you. It's a powerful statement that, that Paul is quoting here. He goes on to say, Now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. You're under the promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh, the religious person, persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. The, the person who believed in the gospel was being persecuted by the religious person. It is the same now. Can I, can I say it is the same now? Like, like nothing has changed. He wrote this 2,000 years ago, and he's talking about the way people live today. We're still persecuted today for preaching the gospel. Charles Spurgeon, the famous pastor in London, England, he said, unless you're criticized for preaching the gospel, you're not preaching the gospel. Because religious people will always criticize the gospel because it doesn't make sense to them. In fact, uh, I get this from time to time as a pastor. I get letters in the mail from you know, concerned church members and concerned attenders, and I brought one for you today to read. I love these because it, I'm telling you, this is the most encouraging letter I think I've ever received. I mean, this let me know that I am going the right way, like, like I'm on the right track. Like I, I tell you, I have never been more encouraged 
than when I receive this letter. I mean, I save these. I frame them. I put them up on the wall because they're, they are my badges of honor. So, so this one is a couple years old, so I just, you know, I, I give it a little time before I read it publicly. <laughs> but I hope you're here and listening to this series because it would really help you. So, so listen to this. This is great. This is like, especially in light, because remember, what was the teacher's religion in Galatians? The teachers, they had no problem with you believing in Jesus. Remember, it was like, it was fine to believe in Jesus, but that wasn't enough. You had to believe in Jesus and obey the law. Then you were saved. And Paul was like, no, 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 it's Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's believe in Jesus. You're saved. And then when you're saved, you now have the power to obey the law. So here's the letter. I started going to Coastline a few weeks ago, but after listening to your sermon Sunday, I was shocked. And then he let me know how upset he was. He says, if I heard you correctly, you said that faith alone would save you. He goes, faith alone will not save you. It is faith plus works. As a pastor, you're going to be held accountable to God. And I thought that was one of the most encouraging letters I've ever got. It lets me know that I'm preaching the gospel because anytime you preach the gospel, the son born of the flesh is going to persecute the son born by the power of the spirit because it is Jesus plus nothing. He goes on to say, what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. Now that sounds very harsh because when you know the story in Genesis 16, uh, Hagar got the short end of the stick in that relationship. She was cast out. And it seems very cruel and very harsh, but I want to remind you that God took care of her. God blessed her and blessed her son, and God provided for her. This is Paul speaking figuratively. And so what Paul is saying here is get rid of religion. Don't live under religion. Don't live under the bondage of religion. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. When you live under religion, you'll never enjoy the faith that you have. You'll never enjoy the Christian experience. You won't enjoy the gospel when you live under religion. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. So this is a very emotional chapter. Paul, Paul begins verse 15 to verse 20. He's pouring his heart out. He's crying out, I'm, I'm aching for you. I'm hurting for you. I'm perplexed by you. Please listen to reason. Please listen to wisdom. And then all of a sudden in verse 21, the chapter, you know, when you look at it, kind of takes an abrupt turn. Like he gets into this abstract lesson on theology, like this is Hagar and this is Sarah, and and it doesn't make sense because he's like, I'm hurting for you, I'm crying out, please listen to me, my son. Now, class, turn to page 101, and we're going to study Hagar and Sarah today. And it's like at first glance, you're like, what is Paul doing? Because he goes from counseling to theology, he goes from this in-depth cry of the heart to this abstract lesson in theology. So you have to understand, what Paul is doing is, is he's still counseling. Here's how you read this passage. The theology is the counsel. You see, this teaching on theology that Paul is giving, that is the counsel. That is why his heart is crying out, because he's saying, I don't want you following religion. Because this is not two different views of Christianity. These are two entirely different religions. The way the teachers are presenting it, believe in Jesus, follow the law, obey the law, become Jewish in custom and and habit, Uh, then you're saved. That is not at all Christianity. It doesn't even remotely come close to what the gospel teaches. It's Jesus plus nothing. So we get into Hagar and Sarah. And very likely, the reason Paul gives us this figurative story is because the teachers of the law were trying to, to teach that believing in Jesus wasn't enough. You also had to be a child of Abraham. 
The way to receive the promises, you had to believe in Jesus and you had to be a child of Abraham. And to be a child of Abraham, you had to adopt all of the Jewish customs and all of the Jewish culture and all of the Jewish tradition. You had to go get circumcised. So what Paul does is he clears it up. That is not at all what being a child of Abraham is. And so to summarize you know, this theology lesson, Paul basically says there's two sons, there's two covenants, there's, there's two mothers, there's two ways to approach God. There's two ways to be a child of Abraham. You can be a child of Abraham like Ishmael through Hagar, you can be a child of Abraham like Isaac through Sarah. What's the difference? You see, God makes a promise to Abraham. God says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and you're going to have children, and through your seed will come the Messiah, come Jesus. Well, Abraham's getting old, and his wife is getting old, and she's desolate. She's barren. She can't have any children. She's past the age of childbearing. It's now physically impossible for Sarah to get pregnant. And Abraham has this promise from God, but God hasn't come through yet. So what does Abraham do? He takes matters into his own hand. He says, okay, if God's not going to do it, then I've got to do this for myself. And so Hagar's young, she's fertile, she's, she's of age to get pregnant, so I'm going to go do this myself, and I'm going to see this promise happen. And that is the definition of religion. You see, what is religion? Religion is saving yourself. See, Abraham had faith, but he put faith in himself. He put faith in his ability to bring the promise. He put faith in his effort. He put faith in his performance. He put faith in, in him taking matters into his own hand, which is the definition of religion. Where Sarah was in a situation where it was impossible to get pregnant. So the child that Sarah delivered was supernatural. It was by God. It was something that was apart from Abraham and his performance and his ability. One child born in the flesh, born in religion. One child born in the spirit, born of promise. Now, let me also explain something because there's a lot of people that get hung up on the polygamy in the Bible. Like, like this, is, this is horrible. Abraham's supposed to be the father of many nations. God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. They're all polygamists. Like, here's Abraham. He's got a wife, and now he's, he's going off with his servant, Hagar. Like, like what, is, what does this mean? I want you to understand what Abraham did was violate God's will in Genesis 2.24. God's will has always been one man, one woman. God has never, ever, ever endorsed polygamy. In fact, Everyone in the Bible that has ever gotten involved in polygamy got burned as a result, got hurt as a result. So I want you to understand, not everything you read in the Bible is because God endorsed it, it's just because the Bible documents it. And I like the fact that God documents people's mistakes because it encourages me because I've made mistakes. I've done things that are outside of God's best for me and I've been burned. And I like the fact that some of the greatest men and women of the Bible, the Bible documents their failures as much as their successes. We see the things where they get outside of God's will, and we see where they get burned as a result because it teaches us. It's an example for us. I just want to make it clear. God is not for polygamy. Everyone that has ever done polygamy in the Bible has been hurt, has been burned. It's caused nothing but problems in their life. And that's what happens here with Abraham. You've got two sons that are now warring because of a polygamous relationship that was not God's best for him. He should have just waited and trusted God for God's promise. So Hagar represents salvation by works. I'm going to work for it. Religion. Sarah represents 
God's promise, God doing it supernaturally apart from our effort, apart from our performance. In other words, Jesus plus nothing, the gospel. And in fact, when you look at the parallel, it's incredible because God says to Sarah, Sarah, one day the Messiah is going to come through you. Jesus will be born through your line. And years later, another girl in a situation where it was physically impossible to get pregnant gets pregnant. Not because she's old and barren, but because she's young and a virgin. So in two situations, we see God do the supernatural through a child, a child of promise. So this is incredible. Because if Hagar is the way we relate to Abraham, then it's all about how morally good you are. It's all about how much self-control you have. It's all about how much self-discipline you have. It's all about how well you religiously follow all the rules. But Sarah, for me, is a huge encouragement. Sarah is an encouragement for anyone that's ever felt like a spiritual failure. For anyone that has ever felt like, I, I just, I can't do enough. It's like, I, I, never, I, I never amount to what I feel like I should amount to. I just feel like I fall short with God. Sarah's a huge encouragement for us. Because Sarah shows us it's not about what we do. It's not about how good we are. It's not about how fertile we are or our ability to have children. It's all about the promise. It's all about the power of God in our life and not about how good we are. It's just a beautiful story. Now, I'm not going to spend any more time there because we've spent already a number of weeks really looking at the difference between the gospel and religion. And, and Paul basically summarizes most of what we've studied so far with this little story. What I want to do is I'm going to go back to the emotional part of the chapter, the, the, the 5 to verse 20 or 15 to verse 20, where Paul is crying out for people. He's hurting for people. And what we see in the life of Paul is he's modeling something for us. He's modeling for us a type of Christianity that, that we need to follow. He's modeling for us something that, that really is beautiful. Here's what he says back in verse 15. He says, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. I don't know about you, but that sounds extreme. Like, like that, that jumped out at me. Like That is a big statement right there. And I don't think he's literally meaning that they would physically tear out their eyes. I think he's talking about the extent of the emotion. I think he's saying that you love me so much, you care about me so much, that if I needed you to, you would absolutely tear out your eyes for me. And that was just an extreme statement. And when I saw that, you know, I paused for a moment. And two questions immediately came to my mind. The first question that came to my mind is, do I have friends like this? Do I have anybody in my life that I could honestly say they would tear out their eyes for me? They love me so much. They care about me so much that if I needed them to, they would literally tear out their eyes for me. And then the second question that came to me is, am I that type of friend? Do I have people in my life that I care about enough that if they needed me to, I would absolutely rip my eyes out for them? You see, what Paul is showing us here is biblical community. He's showing us what real friendship is all about. He's showing us the type of friendship that really is the purpose for why we do small groups as a church. Like, I hope you understand, the only reason we do small groups as a church is to help you find real friendship, to help you find biblical friendship. You don't need another thing to do, and we don't need you to do another thing, but we all need real friendship in our life. We all need biblical community in our life. We all need people that we would, we would go to an extreme to help, and they would go to an extreme to help us. 
And so what we see Paul modeling here is there's three very powerful principles that Paul shows us about friendship, and it really answers the question, why small groups? Like, why as a church are we committed to small groups? Why are we passionate about small groups? Why do we believe with all of our heart that every single person in our church family should be a part of a small group? Paul answers the question by showing us what real friendship is all about. And and here, from the wisest man to ever live, King Solomon, here's what Solomon says about connection and and why it's so important to us. In Ecclesiastes 4, Solomon says, there was a man all alone. He didn't have real friends. He wasn't in a small group. He he was disconnected. (laughs) I I don't know how else to read into that, but he had neither son nor brother. As a result, there was no end to his toil. His life was miserable. And no matter how much money he made, it didn't matter. You see, I think in our community, we, we can be notorious for being incredibly successful and not having one person we consider a friend. And in fact, sometimes the more successful we are, the less friends that we have, the less people we can trust. It's critical we learn to connect. You see... God actually created the universe that we live in, the world that we live in, planet Earth, on a principle of connection, that the only way something can grow is when it's connected. Like, think about a seed. God God is the only one that can hide an entire forest into one seed. One seed can produce an entire forest, yet if that seed does not connect with the soil and get intimately involved with, with the ground, it cannot grow. It cannot produce. Think about my hand for a moment. Like, like this is my, you know, 42-year-old hand. No, 43. I just had a birthday. 43-year-old hand. <laughs> I'm getting old. I can't remember things now. When I was five years old, this hand was much smaller. It was much smaller when I was five years old. Now, what would have happened if my five-year-old hand would have said, you know what? I'm tired of being a part of this body. I don't, I don't need to be in a small group. I don't need to be connected to the rest of the body. I can just kind of do my own thing. Let me ask you, would my five-year-old hand ever have grown this large if it decided to get disconnected from the arm? No. The only way for my hand to grow is if it stays connected to the arm. Do you realize the only way for you to grow is to stay connected? It's the only way for us to grow. God rigged the system that way. Like, God rigged it where he wouldn't be enough for you. Like, I got up early today, and I was reading in our one-year Bible. We're reading first. Corinthians chapter 12 today, I would encourage you to go home and read 1 Corinthians 12. The whole chapter is about the power of connection and and what happens in our life when we stay connected to the body, when we stay in the right relationship. So let me me show you three things from this, this story, three principles that Paul illustrates, that he models for us about friendship. Number one, the right friends speak the right things to you. When you have the right friends, they will speak the right things to you, the things that you need to hear. Not just the things you want to hear, but the things you need to hear. What does Paul say? Paul says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Like You need some people in your life that are willing to tell you the truth, that are willing to be honest with you. Why? Because you have blind spots. I have blind spots. We all have blind spots. There are areas of your life that you are oblivious to, that everyone else can see but you. Like You say, that's not like me at all, and everyone around you says, no, that's exactly like you. You know, it's like the lettuce in your teeth at dinner. Everyone at the table knows it but you. I mean, that's what we're talking about. We all have those areas, and you need a friend to speak truth into the blind spots of your life. How many of you ever watched the American Idol shows? You remember they were on for years, American Idol? I wasn't a big fan of American Idol. I just don't like musical television at all, but 
I love the, the, the first couple episodes, the auditions. How many of you remember the auditions? When people were horrible, like they just, they were so bad. They had no clue. They, they were completely oblivious to how bad they sunk. And, and it was just hilarious to watch because they would get up there and they would go for it. And in their mind, they're hearing something. And then everyone else in the world is hearing something else. Remember William Hung? Like he was my favorite. Like he was, he was actually so bad. He had a career being invited to sing badly places. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. And when you watch the auditions of American Idol, what you, what you realize, what, what it actually revealed to us when you watch the auditions was not that these people cannot sing. That's not what it really revealed to us. What it really revealed to us is that these people had no real friends in their life. <laughs> Some of you will get that later. Um, <laughs> Like they, they, they had nobody that loved them enough to sit them down and say, listen, I know you really enjoy this, but this is not your gift. <laughs> like, like, I know you, you think this, but let me show you the reality of, of <laughs> what, what you're seeing in yourself. And we all need that in our life, not just speaking truth, but we also need people to, to build us up. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, encourage each other, build each other up. See, I need people that can speak into my blind spots, but I also need people who can build me up, who can encourage me, who can love on me. You know, one of the greatest, I think, problems with our culture today is what we call sarcasm. You know, there's just a lot of sarcastic people out there. And I think sarcasm, when you really study sarcasm and you really look at sarcasm, what sarcasm is, is telling somebody the truth you really want to say, but quoting it in humor so you don't get in trouble. Isn't that what sarcasm is? I'm going to tell you how I really feel, but I'm going to hide it in humor so that I can get away with it. And then if I actually offend you, if I actually hurt your feelings, then I've got to get out of jail free card. What is it? I'm just kidding. Yeah, we all know how to get out of it. Like if someone gets offended, if someone gets a little hurt by our sarcastic remark, all we say is you're being too sensitive. I was just kidding. I didn't mean it. No, you actually did mean it. You're just trying to hide behind humor so you can say it. Can I say that's, that's not becoming of Christians? That's not who we are as followers of Jesus. That is not what we've been called to as followers. Of, we're, we're to build each other up. Look at Colossians 4. I love this. Be gracious in your speech. Be gracious in how you talk to each other. Why? Because the goal is to bring out the best in others in a conversation, not put them down, not cut them out. What would it look like this week is if you made this your goal in every conversation you had this week? You know what? My goal in this conversation is I want to bring out the best in this person. I'm not going to cut them down. I'm not going to put them down. I want to bring out the absolute best in them. That's my goal. I'm going to be gracious, and I'm going to bring out my best in them. What, what would your life look like if you made that your goal? And, and let me say this. For everyone here that is married, this is a great verse on marriage. All of the verses in Bible about how to treat each other, you should apply to your marriage. Like, like, sometimes we think, well, if it's not strictly teaching about marriage, it doesn't apply to marriage. No, this is a marriage memory verse. You should, you should commit this one to memory, and you should practice this one often in your marriage. Imagine what your marriage would look like if the goal of every conversation with your spouse was to bring out the best in them, not cutting them down, not putting them down, but bringing out the best. It would change your marriage. That's for free. It's not even part of the message. That was just <laughs> bonus material. Our desire as a church is to help you find these type of people. 
to help you find that. And again, this is why we strategically do small groups as a church, is we're trying to help you find real friendships. We're trying to help you find people that can speak truth to you. And let me just, let me just take a moment and, and make sure I, I help the, the truth speakers for a moment, because there are some people who they really feel like God put them on earth to speak the truth. That is their spiritual gift, is truth. And they get a little ahead of themselves at time, and they like to just let you know exactly what they think in the name of truth. So for those of you who feel like your spiritual gift is speaking truth, don't do it week one. Like, don't do it right after you met them. Give yourself some time to build a relationship because it doesn't work if you just met the person. Like you may see their blind spot within a minute. Don't tell them right away. Earn the right to speak into it. Like build relationship. Give it a few weeks, and there will come a point where they will invite you to speak into their blind spots. But it's all about timing. It's all about timing. And this is our this is our desire is to get you. To, to intentionally group together so that you can find some real friends in your life so that they can speak the right things. Truth, encouragement, love, help. Here's the second thing. The right friends develop the right things in you. Paul says this. He says, it is fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good. There's got to be a purpose. There's got to be something intentional about your friendships. Are we intentional about our friendships? Are we intentional about the people we group with every week? Is there a purpose to the people we group with every week? Are, why are we hanging out? You see, this is why I love small groups. I love my small group. Yes, we have a lot of fun in my small group. And yes, we have barbecues in my small group. And yes, we have pool parties in our small group. And yes, everyone that is a part of my small group, I would hang out with them even if they weren't in my small group because I just enjoy being around them. But what I love most about our small group is there's a purpose to it. We're not just hanging out to hang out. We're not just barbecuing to barbecue. We're not just playing in the pool to play in the pool. There is a purpose. We're there intentionally to make each other better, to develop the right things in each other, to, to be the Christian community that God has called us to be. It's Proverbs 27, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. I want people that are going to sharpen me. I want to help sharpen others. I need that. I need my small group to be the best husband I can be, to be the best father I can be, to be the best man I can be, to be the best pastor I can be. I mean, think about it like this. If you could get 1% better, is it worth it? If you could get 1% better, is it worth it for your wife? Is it worth it for your husband? Is it worth it for your kids? If you just got 1% better, is it worth it? You know, one of the things I've said for years is I don't want my wife to love me for who I am. I want her to love me in spite of who I am, because I'm, I'm not the smartest person all the time. But I want her to challenge me to be the best that God has called me to be, because that's the biblical purpose of marriage. And I know some of you are thinking to yourself, I really don't need a small group. I'm, I'm, I'm doing really good right now. Like, my marriage is strong, and, and my career is doing good, my kids are doing great. I really don't need a small group, because things, things, things really are put together in my life. Can I tell you, you're robbing people in this church because there's people who need you. It's not just about what you need. It's about what you have to offer. It's about what you have to give. So even if you don't receive anything at all out of your small group, there are people who are going to receive from you because you have something to give. We are called to help each other, to be connected like the human body so that each part can grow and each part can flourish because we're working together. 
Hebrews 6 puts it like this. God is not unjust. He's not unjust. For those of you who feel like, well, I don't have time for a small group. My life is so busy. Can I tell you, if you don't have time for a small group, you don't have time not to be in a small group. Why would I say that? Because the busier your life is, the more stress and responsibility you have. And the more stress and responsibility you have, the more you need to be able to grow to handle it. And you may think, this area of my life is not connected at all to that area, but I'm telling you right now, the way God designed this world is until we connect with the right people, we're not going to grow. We're not going to produce. It's exactly the way God created the world that we live in. You may not think it's connected, but I tell you, when you connect with the right people, your marriage is going to grow, your parenting is going to grow, your business is going to grow, your career is going to grow, your life is going to grow. Why? Because connection produces growth. It's the way God designed the world. It's Genesis chapter 1. It's how he created the universe to respond. So he's not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him. Now, as a follower of Jesus, we want to love God, don't we? We want to love him. How do we love him? Help his people. Help his people and continue to help them. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I thought loving God was just showing up on Sunday and singing. I thought loving God was just reading my Bible and praying. No, loving God is also helping his people and continuing to help them. This is, this is the dream team. This is small groups. Are you living out this verse? Because this is a verse for followers of Jesus. Here's the third thing that Paul shows us. The right friends hurt for the right things for you. The right friends are, are willing to bear pain with you, are willing to go through tragedy with you, are willing to hurt with you. Paul says, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now, I've been told that as a man, you should never say to a woman that you understand childbirth. Like, like, like you will never understand what the pain of childbirth feels like. So don't pretend, don't act like it. So I know some of you are kind of mad at Paul right now for even assuming that he gets the feeling. What Paul is really saying is, listen, I, there are going to be times where, where I can't even imagine how bad it's going to hurt. Like, like, I've never been in that situation. I've never been in that position. I've never physically given birth to a child. I've only been told and, and seen that it's not a pleasant experience. But I know that there's going to be times in my friendships where I'm going to hurt to be a friend, that I'm going to, I'm going to feel it to be a friend. And this is biblical community. Acts chapter 2, you want to know what Christians look like, how Christians live their life. It says all the believers met together constantly. They met together constantly. And when you study the New Testament, when you study the book of Acts, they met together publicly like we're doing today, where they would get together once a week and they would worship God as a community. And it says they met in home to home, in house to house. They met in small groups. So they got together for public worship, and they got together in small groups and homes, and it says they shared everything with each other. They shared the, the death of loved ones. They shared the birth of children. They shared tragedies. They shared triumphs. They laughed together. They cried together. They did life together. They understood real friendship. They understood biblical community. Colossians 3 says, bear with each other. That's a problem for us right there. You see, what, what's easy for us is it's easy for me to be generous to somebody who's in need. Like if you're going through a hard time, it's easy for me to be generous to your hard time. What's not as easy for me is to carry your hard time. See, I don't mind being generous to your need, but I don't want to bear your need. I don't want to actually feel it. I just want to give to it. What do I mean? 
I don't want to give in such a way that I actually have to scale back my family vacation. So I'll help you as long as I don't have to change my plans. I'll help you as long as I don't have to cut out my Starbucks addiction. I'll help you as long as I don't have to change my lifestyle to do it. Like, like I'll be generous to you, but I'm not going to bear your burden. I'm not going to bear your burden in such a way where it burdens me, where I actually have to feel your burden. I'll, I'll give to you if it doesn't cost me, but I'm not going to give in such a way where I actually have to bear it myself. And what Paul is saying is the right friends will hurt for you. You know, one of our overseers, Rick Bazette, he's actually going to be with us in a few weeks on a weekend. He's one of our favorites as a church. We love this guy. Uh, he was telling me about one of their small groups in their church where it was a group of married couples. And for a few weeks, the husband wasn't showing up on one of the couples. And so they asked the wife, Where, where's your husband been? Why, why hasn't he been here for the last few weeks? And come to find out, he'd been having an affair on his wife. He'd been seeing another woman. And so the guys of the group asked you know, for some of the details, and, and what they discovered was it, was it was basically every Thursday night, he would stay late after work, and he wouldn't get home to one or two in the morning, and that was the night he was out with this other woman. And so what the men of this small group did is they decided, okay, on Thursday nights, we're going to go camp out in his front yard. <laughs> and so a group of about five or six men, they got their, their lawn chairs, and they would go over to this guy's house about 10 o'clock at night, and they would just sit in the front yard 10 o'clock at night and wait for him to come home. And he'd, he'd come rolling up the driveway about 1 o'clock in the morning, and they weren't there to condemn him. They weren't there to judge him. They weren't there to confront him. All they said to him when he got out of his car is, hey, Bill, we're glad you made it home. We just wanted to make sure you made it home okay. That's all they said to him. Can, can I tell you, that's like the worst thing to say to somebody in sin. That's like, can you imagine the conviction that would fall on you? I mean, confront me. Do something. Don't say that because now, now I'm going to be haunted for a week by what you said. It didn't take him more than two to three weeks to get right with God and get right with his wife and restore things. Why? Because a group of men were willing to get inconvenience to save a marriage. A group of men were willing to care carry the burden of a family, to restore that family, to restore that marriage, to hurt a little bit for that situation. So let me give you a key take, couple key takeaways as we close, and these will be quick. First, and this is a statement we should all make about ourselves, I need to be intentional about surrounding myself with the right friends. I need the right friends in my life, and I need to be intentional about grouping together. I need to be intentional about this in my life. Let me give you some rapid-fire biblical wisdom on this. Three Proverbs. A mirror reflects a man's face, but what he is really like is shown by the kind of friends he chooses. What you're really like is shown by the people you group with. He who walks with the wise grows wise. You, wanna, you want a better marriage? Get around other couples who want a better marriage. You want to be a better parent? Get around other people that want to be better parents. Get together for a purpose with people that are going to sharpen you and grow you and encourage you. The righteous, I love this, choose their friends carefully. The righteous, choose their friends carefully. Who are you? And, and this is not to say that we're not to have friends outside of the church. We absolutely are to have friends who are not Christians. But we need to have a group of people who love God, a group of people in our life who are committed to God, a group of people who are going to make each other better, who, who, who's going to, where you're going to experience real friendship, where you're going to grow in relationship. And again, it may not be the first couple weeks, but over a period of time, you're going to have some friends that would tear their eyes out for you. And you would be willing to tear your eyes out for them. 
So how? Let me make this as practical as I can possibly make it for you today. First, find a group. Find a group. You can go outside right after service and stop by our small group tent, talk to our team. We have a team of people that are committed to help you do this. They will introduce you to people. They will connect you with people. They will follow up to make sure that, that, that you're, you're finding the right group. Like They are committed to see you through this process, to help get you connected, to help you find the right friends and relationships in your life. And if you don't get it right the first time, don't give up. Just, just try another group. I mean, how many of you looked at more than one home before you bought a home? I mean, you didn't give up when you looked at the first house and didn't like it, did you? No, you, you kept looking until you found the right one. We believe you're going to find the right one quickly, but if it's not the right one immediately, let us help you find the right group. Because again, this is for you. This is the way God designed us to be able to grow, is we have to be connected. The second is be faithful. Be faithful to your group. Why? Because you need people, but more than that, people need you. People need you. Why? Because you have something to offer. You, you have something to contribute. You have something to give. You, can make, you may feel like, like, I have nothing in my life to author. I have nothing to give anyone else. I'm just beginning this journey. I barely understand Christianity. What do I have to offer? The truth is God is not a liar, and the Bible says that God designed you with gifts inside of you that are natural to you, and the Bible is clear. Use those gifts to serve one another. You have something to offer, and it doesn't matter how advanced or experienced you are in Christianity. You have something to contribute. I've learned more from, from the people in my small group who are the newest to Christianity than the people who have been Christians the longest because they, they have such a fresh way of seeing things that have helped me. And then finally, begin to grow. That's what's going to happen. When you connect, just like the seed connecting to the earth begins to grow, when you connect with the right people, you're going to grow, and it'll impact areas that, that you may think, well, well, these are unrelated, but they absolutely are. And then my last piece of wisdom, show me your friends, and I will show you your future. And this is huge for like high school students and college students, but there is no age limit on this. I'm telling you right now, show me your group of friends. Show me the people that you intentionally get together with on a regular basis. And I'll tell you what your future is going to look like a year down the road. I'll tell you what your ambition is going to look like a year down the road. I'll tell you what your marriage is going to look like a year down the road. It's clear. So here's my last scripture to leave you with. Hebrews 10, let us not give up meeting together. Like it's critical. It, it, it is important. There, there, is, there is so much purpose and meaning when you study it biblically to why we come together once a week to worship God, but there's also biblical meaning and purpose in meeting in home to home throughout the week. And the book of Acts is clear. We need both. We need our corporate worship, and we also need our house-to-house -house real friendship, real biblical community to be a well-rounded Christian, or it's not going to work. Again, this is the system God designed. It's how he created the world that we live in if we want to see the results, if we want to see the benefits. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day, capital D, that's Jesus coming back, approaching. So my final action step for you, join a small group today. And, and let me be absolutely clear, it doesn't have to be a small group of Coastline Church, but you need an intentional group of people who love God that you meet with on a regular basis for your spiritual journey, for your benefit. We'd love to help you find that here, but it doesn't have to be here. But for your sake, for your journey, 
you need an intentional group of people, and it needs to be bigger than your marriage and bigger than your immediate family. Trust me on that one. Because I know a lot of people think, well, that's my, that's my wife, that's my husband, I don't need anyone else. Trust me, you do. You do. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray today that you would just reveal to our hearts the importance of us connecting. That, God, you created it where we, where, where we couldn't just love you on our own, that you weren't enough for us, that the only way to truly be in relationship with you is to be connected to the body, to find our place in the body. Just like the only way for my hand to flourish is to stay connected to the arm, the only way for me spiritually to flourish and, and emotionally to flourish is to stay connected to the body, to, to find my place, to find my place to serve whether through the dream team or another way, to find my, my, my group of people, my small group that I'm going to be intentional about getting together with so that we can sharpen each other, so that we can hurt for one another, grow with one another, develop one another, speak truth to one another. God, every single one of us need this. We never outgrow the need of connection. So help us, God, as a church. Take this seriously. And understand how important it is to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to close with one song of worship. As always, our prayer team will be available. If you have anything going on in life and you just need someone to stand in prayer with you, I encourage you to utilize this team. As always, the, the, the smartest thing you can do is make sure you have more than you praying for you. So when you face challenges, have people praying with you. If you're here today, and this may be your first time in the Christian church, and the entire message, even though it's not your typical message of like, come to Christianity, but the entire message, something began to burn in your heart, and something began to tug at your heart, and you really feel like you need to take a step spiritually today. What that is, is you need to give your life to Jesus. And if you're here today, and you'd like to do that, our prayer team would love to pray with you and talk to you about that. It's the greatest decision you will ever make. So as we worship together, our team will be available during the song and after the song. So let's worship together.